Well, good morning, guys. Glad you're here. We're going to jump into it. We've got a, um, we only have seven verses, but these are, um, at least six of them are jam-packed. And uh, you're going to be very familiar with them when, once we jump into them. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to kind of just kick this thing off and, and get going. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for, once again, this opportunity to come together. Thank you for these men and their faithfulness. Uh, And I pray that today you would show up in might and power, that your Holy Spirit would speak into each of our lives, including me, as we deal with these sometimes controversial and somewhat confusing verses, and that we would um, hear carefully what you're trying to say to us about them, and that we might apply them rightly and justly in our lives right here, right now, uh, during this time in which we live. Father, thank you that your word is alive and powerful and can change lives even now. And that's our prayer, that you would change our lives for your glory and for our good. And so we give you this time together and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, Mitchell last week uh, launched us into this topic of submission. Um, What a fun topic, right? Uh, I've gotten a, a, a lot of emails Great emails, uh, guys who are struggling with, you know, how do you apply this, and you know, what do you, what do you do in this context? And and the one reoccurring theme theme that's come up is government. What do you do when it comes to our government? Now, I'm not going to get into that this morning. I I sent you guys more um, emails and um, articles then I think most of you will read. Sadly, none of them have pictures, okay? So there are lots of words, lots of, lots of information, but I really do encourage you to, to read those articles that deal with this issue of, you know, what do we do as Christians when it comes to the government? What do we do when it comes to um, unrighteousness? Do we submit to that? Do we obey that? And so, again, I'm not going to get into that this morning but I, I want to encourage you to continue to wrestle with it. What I want to encourage you to do is wrestle with the Scriptures. I could sit up here and tell you, here's what you do in you know, situation A, and B, and C, but I'm a firm believer that at the end of the day, you have to go to the mat with God, take His Scripture, and apply it to your life. Because I guarantee you, some of you are strong-minded enough that even if I told you this is what you should do, you're going to go, well, I disagree. And that's okay. But what I don't want you to do is disagree with God. So you go to the mat with God, you go to the Scriptures, you wrestle with these passages, and that's why I gave you articles that kind of give you both sides of the coin. What do we do? What should you do? What would God have you do? So this morning, we're going to continue this discussion of submission. Uh, what does it mean to be subject? And we're, we're, we're going to deal with chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, six of those verses are going to be ones that you totally agree with. And you'll see why in just a second. The other one, less likely that you're going to agree with it. But these verses are in incredibly important for us to understand and, and to apply to our lives, as we'll see. But I've, I've called this unpredictably practical because we're in this section of Peter's letter where he's getting really uncomfortably practical, taking these ideas of what does it mean to be a 
chosen child of God, to be set apart, to be holy, to be righteous, uh, to be an alien and a stranger, living in a strange land. How do you take all of that and apply it to our context? And, and so it's, it's really kind of practical, but in a way that sometimes makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Now, he said in chapter 2, verse 9, you, speaking to these people living in northern Asian minor, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, in other words, you are those things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. So he's driven home in chapter 1 and 2, this is who you are. You've been set apart, you're holy, you're righteous, this is how God views you, this is how God sees you, it's not something you're becoming, it's what you are, now live it out. And how you live that out is by proclaiming the excellencies of Him. In other words, glorifying God, as Mitchell uh, pressed on last week, the glories of Him who called you out of darkness into what? Light, His marvelous light. So, He's getting practical. He's now showing them what does that look like in everyday life, proclaiming, declaring. And that word literally means to declare, to exclaim, to, to show through action, not just through words. Some of us are great with words, not so much with actions. And if your words and actions don't match, what is that? Well, it's hypocrisy. You're living a lie. You're play acting. You're pretending to be something you're not. So what he's saying is you've got to show forth, you've got to divulge through your actions what it is that's happened in your life. And he's telling this to a people who are living where? In Asia Minor, in a pagan country, under Roman rule, surrounded by people who don't believe what they believe. And he's saying, live it out. Show others the goodness of God. How do you do that? By the way you live your life. You telling people, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, means nothing if they can't see Christ in you. It's just lip service. And that's why I believe the church today is so ineffective, because there's too many of us that say the right things, but don't do the right things. And that's why this topic of submission or being subject to is so important, and every fiber in your being and my being wants to reject it. And virtually every email I've gotten from, you know, you guys and the guys in the South Campus and the West Campus and the Fort Worth Campus, it all goes back to an issue of, I have my rights. Nobody can tell me what to do. And see, rights is not a biblical issue. It's not a biblical term. It's like fairness. Well, that's not fair. Find me fairness in Scripture. It's not there. Justice is there. Righteousness is there. But rights is not something the Bible elevates and propagates. And yet, as Western Americans, we were like, man, I have my rights, and don't you dare step on my rights. But if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm called to die to my rights. I'm called to give up my rights on behalf of others and to serve others as Christ served me. So we've got to understand that my behavior and your behavior desperately matters in this world. How we live, how we conduct ourselves is the most important thing about us. 
Because again, if he's done all these things for us, then we are to declare his excellencies, his glory, his goodness, his grace, his mercy by the way we live our our lives. And our profession, in other words, what we profess to be a Christian, needs to show up in practical ways. And I know how hard that is, right? I, I know how difficult it is to live out my faith. It's one thing to get up here and teach this stuff. It's a whole other thing to go live it. Okay, and yet that's what I've been called to do. And if I do this every day of my life for the rest of my life, and yet I don't live it out in my life, I'm really a failure at this. Whatever you want to call this, being a teacher, being a pastor. So I've got to live out in practical ways my testimony. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has changed my life. He has done incredible things for me and to me, but it's got to become visible. And, and that's where I think sometimes, I don't know where I heard this term years ago, that most of us are great at being secret service Christians. You know, we, we kind of hide in the weeds, and we, nobody really knows what we are. And I spent many years of my career in advertising as just that. Very few people I worked with knew I was a believer because I didn't bring it up. I just thought, well, you know, they'll know. No, I've got to vocalize it, but I've also got to visualize it. I've got to live it out in my life by the, the things that I do, the things that I say, the way that I act. And the problem with that is I'm going to stand out. I'm going to stick out. And I'm not always going to fit in. And the same thing is true of you and I. See, look at verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Now, what does that mean, live properly? Well, it just simply means to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Why? So that they will see with their eyes, not hear, but see with their eyes your honorable behavior. Now, here's, here's the deal. When they see it, they may not like it. And nine times out of ten, they won't. They'll resent it. They'll get irritated by it. Why? Because it convicts them. Your behavior convicts them. Well, why don't you do what we do? You think you're better than me? You think you're holier than that? But see, as I live out my faith, it will make me stand out, and it will, as these people in northern Asia Minor were finding out in the first century, it will draw attention to them and not necessarily good attention it's it's going to bring wrath it's going to bring anger resentment because they're seeing something about you and in you that convicts them about themselves light dispels darkness darkness can exist in light darkness is really the absence of what light so when we shine like we're supposed to they will see it and they will react to it. Because if you have an invisible faith, it will be an ineffective and unconvincing faith. If you don't live out the change that's taken place, you will have no success in changing the lives of those around you. Now, you may get no reaction. In other words, if if you work in an environment where there are no Christians and you fail to live like a Christian... You'll just blend in and everything will be hunky-dory and you'll have no problems. But as soon as you start living like a Christian, 
as soon as your light starts to, starts to shine in the darkness, one of two things is going to happen. People will be convicted and called to faith, or they'll be con convicted and call you out. One of those two things is going to happen as we live out our faith. Listen to what James says. Someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now, there are many people who say, well, this is him contradicting Paul, and nothing could be further from the truth. He's writing to a different audience. He's got a different perspective and a different point he's trying to make. He's not saying that faith and works are necessary for salvation. He's saying true faith results in true works. It should show up. I should have good deeds that match what I profess to believe. This change that's taken place needs to show up in my life, and then people will see it and be drawn to it or potentially repulsed by it. See, all of this is unpredictable in the sense that you never know what living the Christian life is going to produce. You never know how people are going to respond to it. I think we do know from experience, anytime we've tried to live out our faith, we probably have gotten pushback, resentment, um, criticism, rejection. And again, what we've said for the last weeks is, is that these people living in Northern Asia Minor are living in an environment where they're getting persecuted for living out their faith. And it's not comfortable, it's not fun, and they couldn't predict it. They didn't know this was going to happen when they signed up. And I guarantee most of them are going, what did I sign up for? Where's the good life? Where's, where's the abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10.10? 10? Why am I suffering? Why am I being persecuted? I thought this was going to lead to a better life, but this seems to be worse than before. But see, that's what we have to understand is that we're called to live these new lives, and they're to be marked by doing good. One of the things I want you to, to recognize as you read through chapter 2 and 3 is how many times Peter uses this phrase, doing good. Doing good. He says it in chapter 2, verse 15, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How do you put to, to silence the ignorant people around you? By doing good. I sit there and go, well, it seems like every time I do good, they get louder. They, they get more vocal, but he's, he's saying that there's a day coming when all the ignorance that we suffer with and from right now around us will be silenced. May not happen in your lifetime, may not happen in this century, but there is a day coming when they will be totally silenced, but it's by doing good. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Do good. He goes on, chapter 21. Chapter 2, verse 21, to this you have been called. To this what? Doing good. Living a life of righteousness. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What did Jesus do? We looked at it last week. He did good. He did righteousness. He submitted to his heavenly father. He did the will of his heavenly father. He died on the cross. He rose again. He returned on high. One day he's coming back. He did good. We're to do good. We're to follow in the example of Jesus Christ. Living our lives in the same way by doing good. And guess what? I don't get to choose what's good. I don't get to determine what I want to do that I think is good. I have to do what God has called me to do. 
and I am to declare his excellencies, his glory, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness as exhibited through Jesus Christ, his son. And I do that through words, but I also do it through deeds. That's why in verse 13, he says, be subject. But I don't want to be. I don't like being subject. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I want to run my own life. But he says, be subject. Why? For God's sake. For the Lord's sake. Not for your sake. And not for the other individual's sake. See, I'm in subjection not to the government, ultimately, to my boss. I'm in subjection to God. I'm coming under God, and and in doing good, I'm obeying him. That's why he can tell slaves to be subject to your masters. And one of the things we've got to understand is that these people, and and I think it's interesting that he's chosen two different groups of people in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3, two different groups of people who have no say over their lives. Slaves had no say over their lives. They couldn't quit. They couldn't go, I'm done being a slave. I want to do something else. I want to be a master. No, you didn't have that option. They couldn't choose. They didn't have the right to choose subjection. They were subjected. But he's telling them to come under that subjection with a different attitude, a different mindset. Be subject to your masters. And then we see in chapter 3, verse 1, our verses for today, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, I know I'm talking to men. I also know that there are women who watch these videos. All right? Many of your wives watch these videos. And, and they're, they're going to have an immediate check in their spirit as soon as they see that verse. They're going to go, whoa, 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 you don't know my husband. And there ain't no way I'm subjecting myself to that moron. I know there are women who are watching this who don't have believing husbands. And they're going to say, are you telling me that I've got to subject myself to a man who doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ? Before I answer those questions, I want to dig into what is, what is he telling these people? Remember, he's talking to literal slaves, and he's talking to wives, literal wives, who are believers in Jesus Christ, and he's telling both of them to be subject, to submit, to come under. And he's already used Jesus Christ in chapter 2, we looked at it last week, as the example of submission. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of God, the incarnate God was subject, submitted. He submitted to his heavenly Father. That his whole life is a picture of submission. Not only that, he submitted to the Roman government. All throughout his life, he submitted to the rules, the laws, the predetermined taxations of the Roman government. Pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what belongs to God. He never violated a single rule. He never rebelled against the Roman government. He never said anything derogatory about the Roman government. He subjected himself to it. He also subjected himself to the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Now, he did have a few choice words for these guys, right? You hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, liars, deceivers, 
Now, why was he harsher on, on them than he was with the Roman government? Because they represented the spiritual elite of Israel. And he was not ashamed and afraid to call them out. To let them know that you are setting a wrong example for the people of God. But he submitted to them. He still obeyed the laws, the, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws. He ultimately submitted himself to Pilate and Herod, two men whom he created, two governors that he created. He submitted himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, all the way to what? The point of death. And he allowed ignorant Roman guards to nail him to a cross. I think I've submitted myself over the years to a number of people I didn't respect. Bosses I thought were idiots and morons. And I'm not speaking of anyone I work for right now at Christ Chapel. But I've never had to submit myself the way Christ did. Who literally let people he created nail him to a cross, spit on him, slap him, ridicule him, mock him. And yet, what, is, what do we see here? What is Peter telling these people in chapter 2? Jesus Christ submitted. Jesus Christ allowed himself to be crucified. Look what John writes. He's quoting Jesus. Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. Why does he say that? Because he's the son of God. He has rights. He has privileges. He has power, authority. And yet he says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. I give it up of my own accord, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and I also and also to take it up again, for this is what my Father has commanded. What is that a picture of? Submission to the will of the Father. Submission to what God would have him to do when everything about him says, you don't need to do this. You don't need to submit to Pilate and Herod and to the high priest and to these Roman guards. You don't need to do this. Yes, he did. Why? Because he's doing the will of his Father. This was all predetermined before the foundation of the world. Look at Hebrews. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cries and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. This is a, a reference to his high priestly prayer, prayed in the garden before he was going to be arrested. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. See, his humanity was crying out, I really don't want to go through with this. I really don't want to suffer what's facing me. His humanity was turned off by the prospect of crucifixion. But in his divinity, he's saying, but you know, Father, as much as I hate the idea of suffering and dying and being beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross and asphyxiating on that cross, guess what? I want to do your will. And it says that God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God, his respect for God. That night when he prayed in the garden, God heard those prayers. But then it says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. Well, I don't want to submit to the government. I don't want to submit to that boss who's a moron and lost as a goose and doesn't know what he's doing. I have my rights. We got to keep going back to Jesus. Did Jesus have rights? Yes. Did Jesus have power? Yes. Was Jesus righteous? Yes. Was Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Yet he learned obedience from the things he suffered. 
He suffered on my behalf and on your behalf. He submitted. He subjected himself. So that's why this chapter, these seven little verses, become so important and integral to us because it says, likewise, wives. Now, what, one of the things, I gave you an article, and it's out there on the table, and it, and it basically asks the questions, men, are you submissive? Every guy in this room wants a submissive wife, right? And we'll go to this verse and say, honey, you should be submissive to me. But are you submissive to God? See, when you read these verses, don't just look at the word wife and go, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with me, other than it's putting her under me. You got to remember the context. He says, likewise, what's he talking about? This is another one of those transitional words that we, we talk about so frequently. It literally means in the same way. In the same way as what? As slaves. Well, that's pretty rude, Peter. You're comparing this woman to a slave? Well, guess what? In that context, she was. In that day and age, she was. That's what they were. They were slaves. And Jesus is saying, or Peter's saying, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, likewise, just like slaves submit to their masters, wives are to submit to their husbands. But what's the caveat? What's the condition? As Jesus did. In the same way that Jesus submitted. So he was the son of God. He took on human flesh. He left glory, came to earth, and lived in a human body, which I don't know if you realize that, but that's a, that's a demotion, right? For Jesus Christ to leave glory, the side of his father, and take on human flesh, I wouldn't do it for you, but he did. And here's he's writing to these women who came out of paganism, came to faith in Jesus Christ. They're now daughters of God in human flesh. And he's saying, just as the son submitted, you are to submit. And we take this passage, along with Ephesians chapter 5, and we abuse it, misinterpret it, misapply it. And, and, and over the centuries, the church has done incredible damage with these passages when it comes to women. And I want to be really careful how we unpack this passage because we got to keep it within its context. We love to take individual verses or individual passages, pull them out of their context, and preach sermons and write books and develop doctrine, and we don't keep them within the context in which they were written and remember the audience to whom they were originally written to. So context is everything. Peter is writing to who? Christians living in northern Asia Minor. We've already established the fact that these people are predominantly Gentiles. They've come out of paganism, they've come to faith in Christ, and they're living in a pagan, worldly, unchristian environment, not unlike the one you and I live in. So that's who he's writing to. They're also living under Roman rule, and they're living under a Hellenistic culture, a Greek culture. Now, why is that important? Because they're not living in America. They're not living in 21st century Western civilization. They're living under Hellenistic Greek culture. And that's going to be huge to understanding this passage. These are not American women living in Idaho 
or Iowa or Fort Worth, Texas or Alito, Texas. They're living in a Greek culture among pagans. So why is that important? Listen to this quote. The subordination of wives to husbands reflected in this passage must be seen against a background of the general status of women in the Hellenistic world of that time. Dominant among the elite was the notion that the woman was by nature inferior to man. In other words, that was culturally accepted because she lacked the capacity for reason that the male had. She was ruled rather by her emotions and was as a result given to, now watch this, she was given to poor judgment, immorality, intemperance, wickedness, avarice. She was untrustworthy, contentious, and as a result, it was her place to obey. That's who he's writing to. Women who are living in a culture where they are not second-class citizens, they're not citizens at all. They're, they're just one step above a slave. And they've come to faith in Christ, and they're living in this culture, and they're wrestling with, wait a minute, nothing's changed. I'm still treated this way. I'm seen as immoral, intemperate. I have poor judgment. I'm ruled by my emotions. I'm prone to sin. I'm untrustworthy. That's how they were viewed. And you can sense that these people are probably a little bit irritated by the dichotomy between coming to faith in Christ and living out that faith in a culture that totally rejects you as a human being. And so here he is saying, submit. I've never been a female. I, I don't think I'll ever think I'm one, even though our culture would accept that. I don't understand the female brain, even though I've been married to one for 42 years. But I can only imagine what it was like for these women to hear the words of Peter in the context in which they were living. Be subject. Submit to your husband. When they were constantly being told, all you can do is obey. Obey who? Your husband and every other man. See, women could not vote. They couldn't hold office. They were prohibited from taking an oath. They could not plead a case in court. In other words, they, if they had an issue with their husband, if they had an issue with a neighbor, they couldn't take that to court. They weren't allowed to do so. They couldn't serve as the legal, legal guardian of their own children. It was outlawed. And they were stuck being the legal dependents of either their father, a guardian, or their husband for their entire lives. Now, you got to think this through when you hear Peter writing these words, or see Peter writing these words, and these women hearing them read in the context of their local church community, and they're wrestling with, really? Really, Peter? Do you have any clue what it's like to be a woman here in Asia Minor? And Peter would have to say, no, I really don't. All I'm doing is, I, I'm just the messenger, guys. I'm just telling you what the Lord says, what the Holy Spirit has led me to write. This is what you're called to. As slaves are to submit to their masters, so wives are to submit to their husbands. And so what we have to realize is that this is not radical. It's also not revolutionary. Part of what we want to, to believe and part of what we want to do with Scripture is, is justify our actions by the actions of those in Scripture. But Peter's not a radical. 
He's not a revolutionary any more than Jesus Christ was when he walked the planet. Jesus Christ did not walk around stirring up trouble with issues of slavery and taxation and governmental rule. He, he didn't spend his time dealing with those kinds of issues. He spent his time telling people about the kingdom of God. He came preaching the kingdom of God, as we talked about in our last series. See, Peter and Jesus, neither one were abolitionists. Paul wasn't an abolitionist. He, none of them did anything to get rid of slavery. I think they hated slavery. They would do anything in their minds to get rid of it if they could, but that was not their commission. That was not their calling. Peter writes a letter to Philemon telling him to accept back his runaway slave, but to treat him as a brother. Nowhere in there does he say, and you have an obligation to set this man free. He just says, he's now your brother in Christ. Treat him as such. And he tells that slave to go back. And if he sets you free, wonderful. But if not, then continue to be a child of God, even in that situation. See, they weren't abolitionists, and Peter is most certainly not a feminist, right? He, he's telling them to submit to their husbands. But he is an extremist. And, and there's a huge difference. And you may think, well, Ken, this is all semantics, and I don't really know where you're going. But we are to be extremists when it comes to living out our faith in the context in which we live. What do I mean by that? We looked at this in uh, the sermon this last week. Cody's preaching his way through the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I guarantee the people sitting on that hillside when Jesus preached this message were going, this man is a moron. This man doesn't know what he's talking about. This rabbi's got a screw loose. Because he's saying, God blesses the persecuted. No, 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 no. God blesses the rich. God blesses the well-to-do. God blesses... He didn't bless the persecuted. I don't want to be persecuted. I didn't wake up this morning wanting to be persecuted. And yet he goes on and says, God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. That is extreme, right? No, there's no way to look at that and not go, that's, that's weird. That's wild. That's out-of-the-box thinking, and I don't really like it. Let's put it back in the box. See, he's an extremist. He's calling you and I to live in an extremely different fashion than everyone around us. We're not here to change the world through governmental regulations. And, and, and guys, I'm not telling you don't be involved in politics. I'm not telling you don't vote. I'm not telling you don't care. But that's not your primary function for being here. Your primary function is to live out your faith so that others may see it. And that includes these women that he's writing to. He tells them to submit to your own husbands, which, which leads me to believe it's, he's not telling them to submit to every male you come into contact with. Women are not to subject themselves to every man, but it's very clear to your own husbands. Now, what's going to be clear in this passage is he's talking to women whose husbands are not believers. Because he goes on and says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What's going on here? These are women who come to faith in Christ and they're married to an unbeliever. That's the context. 
It's a different context than, than the one Paul addresses in Ephesians 5. So these are women who've come to faith, and he wants them to live out their faith in that context so that they might influence that unbelieving husband, that they may be one. How? By the conduct, the behavior, the deportment of their wives. As they see the behavior, they will be led, possibly, it's not guaranteed, right? But their behavior might have an influence on their husbands. And they might be one without a word. What kind of behavior? He describes it as respectful, pure behavior. He's talking about the manner in which they lived their life in the context in which they were saved. You know, Paul in one of his letters to the Corinthians says, if you were a slave when you came to, to faith in Christ, stay that way. If you were married to an unbeliever when you came to faith in Christ, stay that way. Don't seek to get divorced. Don't seek to leave him. Whatever context you were in when you came to faith in Christ, that's the context God chose. Stay in it and live like a Christian in the midst of it. That's exactly what's going on here. It's all about their behavior. It's all about the way they live their lives. And he describes it as pure. And that word comes from the very word where we get holy, set apart. They're to live holy lives in the context of a marriage to an unbeliever. Now again, that's rough, right? That's, that's difficult. I know how difficult, difficult it is to work in an environment with people who are unbelievers, but to be married to one, I've never experienced that. And yet that's what he's telling these women to do, is live a holy life in the midst of an unholy situation so that your conduct may have an influence. They're also to be respectful. That The word is literally to live in fear. But he's not talking about fear your husband. He's saying live with a reverence for God. Just like you and I are to submit and to live with reverence for God, respect for God, out of glory for God and obedience to God. That's what he's calling these women to do. And it's tough. The same commentary that, that I just quoted from, he goes on and says, it must be noted that this passage intends to say nothing about the subordination of women to men in general, not even with, within Christian marriage, but intends to be understood primarily within the context of a Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband. Now, Ephesians 5 makes it really clear that God does expect Christian women to submit to their Christian husbands. And I've given you an article on that passage if you want to read it. But this context that Peter's writing within is Christian women who are living with a non-Christian husband, an unbelieving husband. And they're out there, right? It happens. So the cultural context is huge to understanding this passage. A woman was required by law under Hellenistic culture to accept the God or religion of her husband. She had no choice. So whatever God he worshipped, that's who she had to worship. So these women have come to faith in who? Jesus Christ, and therefore have become worshipers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, but their husband worships another God, and legally they were bound to worship his God. Talk about attention, right? Talk about a recipe for disaster. This put these women in a really difficult spot. 
to be faithful to God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ the Son, and yet to submit to their husband who's an unbeliever and worships a whole other God. Part of me wants to say, well, get out of there. Run. Don't submit to that. But what does he say? Live out your faith in such a way that it might influence your husband. Think about it this way. You've got an unbelieving husband who's worshiping a false god. You've got a woman who's come to faith in the one true God. And he's saying, submit to him, but live out the reality in your life. What can that man not do? Live out the reality of his God, because his God doesn't exist. She can. If she comes out from under, if she says, well, forget you, screw you, I'm leaving, I'm done. I'm not going to worship your God. I'm going to worship my God. No, but by staying under, she basically has an opportunity to live out her faith in actions that illustrate that her God is real and his isn't because her life is different. Her deportment is different. Her faith shows up in everyday life, and his doesn't because his God doesn't exist. See, that's what she's being called to. He's not telling her to deny Christ, forget Christ, and worship whatever his false God is. He's saying to stay married and don't seek divorce. Don't come out from under. Don't try to escape. Live out your faith in the very place where you were saved. You know, if over the years I've seen young men who've come to faith in Christ who are in the secular world, they come to faith in Christ and suddenly they find that secular world not real comfortable and not real conducive to Christianity. And the next thing you know, they're going, I think I want, I want to be a minister. You're like, why? I don't know, I just feel like, you know, I, I want to be around Christians. Well, that's the worst thing you can do. I got no slam against seminary, but seminaries are breeding grounds for young people running away from the real world. I, I, I don't want to be around all these non-believers, but I want to be a pastor. Wait, okay, wait a minute. What about pastoring do you not understand? What do, you, what do you not understand about the gospel? Don't run away. Go back where you were saved and be salt and light. See, this, this is so difficult for us to get our heads around that he's basically saying, stay where you are and live out your faith. Don't seek the easy out. Don't escape. We're not to live in communes. We're not to run away as Christians and live in our holy huddles. We're to stay where we are and live out our faith just like these women are being called to do by Peter. See, Paul says this, if a believing woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, in other words, give her some grace, she must not leave him. Don't leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. What an interesting concept. That by staying there, she brings holiness, set-apartness to that unbelieving husband and her entire marriage. He goes on and says this, Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? We are to be salt and light in the midst of a dark 
and decaying world. And we don't pull that off by running from it, by trying to escape it. So then he goes into this really weird discussion about adornment. I've always struggled with this, and I think I'm just now getting my head around it. He changes the conversation between submission to now talking about adorning. Let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, he begins to get them to understand, I'm talking about behavior, and I'm going to get even more practical. It's got to be behavior that comes from the inside out, not the other way around. That's why he's talking about adorning, and he talks about the sight of God. See, God sees things we can't see. God sees the inner soul, the inner beauty, when the world only sees the outside. And that's why he stresses adornment. He he says God sees things that nobody else can see. That's what he wants to show up. That's what he's concerned with. Our inner condition is invisible to those around us. They can't see our heart. That's why it has to show up in behavior. And our outward appearance can be deceptive. We can look a certain way. We can say certain things, and we can behave in a certain way. But if it's not coming from the heart, it's still a lie. It's still not what it's meant to be. And so he says, think about how you adorn yourself. And it reminds me of 1 Samuel where the prophet is told by God after he's gone through every son of Jesse as the next king of Israel, and he runs through the whole lineage of of the sons of Jesse, and everyone, God says, nope, that's not him, nope, that's not him, nope, that's not him. Then he gets to the last kid, the red-headed Hebrew boy, David, and he goes, that's my man. And he says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What's he telling these women? Peter's telling these women that God knows your heart. God knows you are changed. God knows you are different. Let it now appear in the way you live your life and quit worrying about your hair. Quit worrying about your looks. Quit worrying about how people perceive you outwardly. One of the things I hate about social media is is what it does to young women. That they're obsessed with how they appear and it's not just young women, it's, it's old men. You know, you don't post your worst picture, you post your, be- post your best one. You don't, you don't post the, the trip that went to hell in a handbasket, you post the trip that really went well. It's a form of bragging. It's a form of deception. And he's saying, no, that's not what this is all about. I love this. The secret person in this context refers not so much to the general inner aspect of the human being as it does to the person who is determined by a faith that is visible directly only to God and that is apparent to other human beings only by way of external acts. In other words, the only way you can show the change within is to live it out. That's how people see it. Those external acts that we live out, doing good, adorning ourselves with those things that will make a difference. What we wear and how we comb our hair, if we have any left, means nothing. But how we act and behave, doing good deeds, that's the adornment that we need to worry about, even as men. Even as men. 
So externals, braided hair, fine jewelry, expensive clothes compared to a gentle spirit, submissiveness, trust, righteousness. Those are the things that will change another person's life. I may impress someone by the car I drive, the clothes I wear, the home I live in. But this is the only thing that will change someone else's life when they see Christ in me lived out through external acts. And then he uses this really strange comparison to the holy women of the Old Testament. He particularly picks out a woman who I've just finished reading about, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And I find this passage really interesting because he says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, women, if you do good. There, that is, there it is again. If you do good, if you do the righteous thing, the good thing, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Here's what's fascinating. Having just worked my way through the middle chapters of Genesis, there's only one place in the entire Old Testament where Sarah ever calls her husband Lord. And yet here's Peter referencing that one time. And and the word literally means master. Here's where she says it. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with her. In other words, she's barren. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, that's not a compliment, guys. She's not referring to him in a really positive way. She's in her tent. Some angels have come and announced to Abraham that your wife, a year from now, is going to give birth to a child. And she's in the tent, overhears it, and she laughs and goes, That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. I'm barren, and he's an old fart. There's no way. This is the only time she ever refers to him as my Lord. It's not in a positive light. It's not in a, it's it's really in a derogatory manner. But what Peter is trying to say, this woman who struggled with faith, who struggled with belief, who had doubts, continued to obey and come under the leadership of a man who at times was an idiot and who did some really stupid things and got her into some pretty serious trouble. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham. She didn't always understand. She didn't always agree. She didn't always want to do what he told her to do. But she never disobeyed him. And I read the life of Abraham, and I would have disobeyed the guy on numerous occasions. Because he didn't always make the best of decisions. What's he saying? Why is he using Sarah as an example? Because she remained committed to her husband for life. In spite of him, she did good, and she didn't fear. She trusted God. See, what jumps out at me is that she was an alien and a stranger in Canaan. She faced all kinds of problems and difficulties while she lived there, but she always did good, and she did not fear. Now, when I say always, yes, she had her doubts. She had her fears. She made dumb decisions herself. But if you look at the context of her life, she did good, and she trusted God. How do I know that? Look at the book of Hebrews. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him God faithful who had promised. She kept trusting God. And what's Peter telling these women? Trust God. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't don't throw in the towel. Do good. And then we'll close with this. Here's the one verse for us. And we love that it's one verse. 
But man, this verse is jam-packed. Likewise, husbands, in the same way as slaves submit to masters, as wives submit to husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are what? They are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. He makes a change here and he's talking to believing husbands with believing wives. And he's saying, live with them with honor, with respect. What does that mean? Treat her with value. Treat her with reverence. Hold her in high esteem. She's of great value to God. Otherwise, God would not have redeemed her. And you need to treat her as God would. She's a co-heir. She's not your servant. She's not your slave. She's not a doormat. She is your helpmeet. She is your complimenter and completer. And you need to treat her with great value, almost as if she's a priceless vase that God has handed to you. It's like me giving a priceless vase to a monkey and saying, take care of this. God's going to hold you accountable, guys. God's going to hold me accountable. He holds you responsible. How? What does he say? He's going to say, your prayers will not be heard if you don't do this. The seriousness with which God takes the necessity of men to treat women as equal heirs of God's eschatological grace, in other words, the future, is shown in that final phrase. Lack of such treatment means that men's prayers to God are hindered and so have no effect. God does not listen to them. If that doesn't make sweat break out on your forehead, you're not listening or you don't care. But guess what? God cares. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wait, Ken, it doesn't say that. Oh, yes, it does. When you show honor to that woman, you're submitting and coming under her, and you're saying you're of greater value than I am. I don't know of any greater act of submission than that. And to treat her with honor and reverence and respect as a child of God. So here's your questions. Why would Peter warn that God does not answer the prayers of a man who fails to honor his wife? What's the connection between the two? Why would God not want to hear your prayers or answer your prayers when you fail to respect what he's given you? Secondly, look back at 1 Peter 2.16. What does our living as servants of God have to do with all this talk about submission, showing honor, and doing good? And then finally, look at Matthew 5.10-11. In what ways is Jesus calling us to a life of extremism? Not radicalism, not revolutionism, but extremism. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's rich, it's deep, it's powerful, it's impacting, it's convicting, it's confusing at times. And in many times, Father, I just don't want to do it. It's not something that appeals to me. But I know that if I obey your, your word, I will be blessed because of it. And it's my prayer that every man in this room, including me, would take these words to heart and that we would want to live out our faith in such a way, wherever we are, right where we are, so that our identity in you can be seen by all those around us, and it might lead them to you. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.